Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. What if I told you there was a type of therapy available that has scientifically been shown to reduce anxiety, prevent and treat depression, enhance cognitive functions, mood and concentration, potentially make you a smarter and nicer person? You'd probably say that sounds pretty awesome. But then I'd say, wait, there's more. What if I also told you that this particular treatment can help you manage chronic pain, potentially reducing the need for long-term opiates, and it is virtually free of any harmful or negative side effects, and it's available to anyone without the need for a prescription right in the comfort of your own home? You'd say, okay, you sold me on this. What is this so-called miracle treatment? Mindfulness. That's the focus of today's conversation. We're going to be talking about meditation and mindfulness, including something called mindfulness-based stress reduction, getting into the nitty-gritty of what it is, what it can do, and where does the science stand on all this. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call Podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin. Today we're talking mindfulness with Dr. Ruth Lerman. Dr. Lerman is an internal medicine physician and a specialist in breast health and disease. She also teaches courses in mindfulness-based stress reduction including programs designed specifically for physicians, medical students, cancer survivors, women who are at high risk for cancer, and many others. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lerman. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you in the studio. May I call you Ruth? Absolutely. Please do. Okay, Ruth. Thank you. So I'm going to start off the conversation um, with sort of a get-to-know-you game. Um, And I want to ask you a little bit of a personal question. Specifically, I want to know kind of what the genesis of your own um, meditation practice is and how that has sort of blossomed into you now being a, a mindfulness teacher. Hmm, good question. Okay, we could. We, this could be a long story, but I'll, I'll try to be, be fairly. Long as okay. Okay. So really, this came out of the time when I was diagnosed with my second breast cancer. So the first cancer that I had, I was like, okay, that's good, breast cancer. I know the prognosis. I'll be fine. I approached it very much from my doctor persona. Sure. When I got the second breast cancer, I acted like a normal person, and it was. I was scared. Um, and so I knew that I could get great medical care, but I also knew I needed something else to allow me to feel safe again in the world. And somebody just suggested going to yoga, and I'm a good student, so it was a reputable person who suggested that. And I went to yoga, and it was the first place that I felt like I could breathe a little bit. Eventually, I kind of wandered into some meditation classes, and specifically, I took a course with John Kabat-Zinn, who's the the guy who developed mindfulness-based stress reduction. He's really the father, I would say, of mindfulness in um, American healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, this is really impressive stuff, and it really brought the science to the stuff that I had experienced and felt in my heart. Um, How did you get hooked up with John Kabat-Zinn? It you? was, you know, whether you want to call it synchronicities or accidents or, you know, it was meant to be. Sure. Um, but I had a credit at a place called Omega Institute. Um, and it's a long story how I happened to have this credit to take a class there. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really anything I thought I was interested in there. It all seemed a little too new agey to me. But there was one thing that you could get continuing medical education credit for. So I was like, okay, I'll sign up for that. And that was this class that uh, John and his um, sort of right-hand man, Saki Santorelli, taught for health professionals. And 
that that's the story. So I got the CME credit and I got hooked. And from there, you decided that you were going to sort of turn this into an opportunity to to take this knowledge out into the world and to to bring other people on board, right? Yes, I had already kind of moved into that mm-hmm. um, through the. I ended having done yoga. I was really impressed with how much yoga could help me with things that patients often came to me about, but that I really didn't have a medical answer for. Mm -hmm. And so feeling that, I went to my yoga teacher and I said, well, how do I bring this into my medical practice? There you go, yeah. And uh, so I got a little bit, I mean, I took a yoga teacher training class, which kind of helped, but it didn't really, it, it didn't show me how to really do something with patients. Did this really change? I mean, I'm sure it did. Yeah. It must have changed your practice in a significant way. I, I'm, I'm sort of guessing that before this, we'll call it a transformation, you were, I guess what you'd call a more conventional internal medicine practitioner. More so, I was already sort of evolving this way. I was always struck by the power of people being together in a group. Okay. And that the, that, that allowed people to make changes that they could not make on their own. So I had had some experience with group work previously and was taken with that. And so I had done some groups with people. Um, and then the yoga teacher training just brought me closer to that. And I was actually doing some classes. I had, was in the middle of teaching the second eight-week course that I had ever taught when I stumbled into the mindfulness-based stress reduction training. And what was the focus of your initial, uh, or what sort of patients were you focusing on initially when you were teaching uh, mindfulness and yoga? Yeah, so the the original patients were um, initially newly diagnosed breast cancer patients, and then we started recognizing more the importance of survivorship care, recognizing that when people finish treatment for the patient themselves, that can actually be a difficult time. And so while everybody else, their family members and friends and their physicians, everybody's like, hey, great, you're done. And for the patient, oftentimes, that's just the beginning of looking over your shoulder and wondering, so when's it coming back? And I'm not doing anything to fight the cancer anymore. So uh, myself and a couple other people here recognized that we needed something for people who were done with treatment. I want to kind of veer off course just a little bit and talk about the, uh, the act of, of meditation and mindfulness itself. When I'm practicing mindfulness, what am I doing? What, how, do you, how do you sort of explain this to people who are new to the game? So there's two parts to it in a sense. There's what we call formal or dedicated practice, and that's the sitting meditation or walking meditation, yoga or a body scan. And then there's informal or integrated practice, which is bringing mindfulness to your daily activities. So let's start with formal practice. Um, And let's start specifically with sitting meditation, which can be done sitting or lying down or standing up. And very simply, you're really just trying to quiet the mind. um, And and to do that, you come into stillness in a comfortable position, and you notice where in your body you can feel your breath most vividly. And then you just breathe in, knowing that you're breathing in, Mm -hmm. breathe out, knowing that you're breathing out. And when the mind wanders, you don't try to push the thoughts away. The mind is going to wander. That's what minds do. So you don't push the thoughts away. You acknowledge the thoughts. And then with trying to cultivate an attitude of kindness and non-judgmentalness, you bring the mind back 
to focusing on the breath. So Return in a nutshell, breath, exactly. start over. Yep. That's sort of the nutshell. And you come back again and again and again and again. And with practice, what you're doing is you're becoming more aware of your own thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, whatever things are linked to those, and just being able to, to recognize those things better as they're coming up. Fair to say? Yeah, to recognize them and to not be so attached sure, to them yeah or rattled by them, so a thought is not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. Our minds are constantly sort of chattering at us. Many of us have really some kind of mean voices in there, you know, (laughs) telling us that we're, you know, really inadequate or just all kinds of unkind stuff. And so being able to recognize that that's just a thought. I'm going to use myself as an example um, for just a moment. I've been a, I'm going to call myself a semi-avid meditator. I've been I took a class with you uh, that was offered through work through Beaumont uh, a couple years ago, and and since then, uh, I've I've really tried to keep up my own practice. I found it was very helpful. But one of the things that I noticed when I first started meditating, I guess before I f- started meditating, I always thought I I had a fairly quiet mind. I didn't ever think that I was really one of those in my own head type of people. And when I started meditating, I suddenly noticed that. I, I had so many thoughts in my head, and I guess I wasn't even really aware of how many thoughts were, were there. And when I started to, to just quiet myself, sit on a cushion, and focus on my breath, I started to feel these thoughts and, and notice these thoughts much more vividly, and I guess I, I, it was a little bit jarring. The, the revelation of, of having that experience can be a little jarring. So I, I guess I want to be able to manage people's expectations. I think that there's an expectation for some that I'm going to start meditating and I'm going to achieve this sort of sense of universal uh, bliss or, or happiness that will just wash over me. That's not really what the point of this is, right? Correct, correct. The intention behind mindfulness is not relaxation. So the intention behind mindfulness is awareness. Mm-hmm. So being able to be present and not miss what's going on in our lives. And your experience of going, whoa, there's a lot going on in there and some of it is as um, poet, I think it was Annie Lamott, said, my mind is like a scary no- neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. <laughs> <laughs> and so we tend to keep ourselves very, very busy, and it's kind of pushing away all those thoughts as we're staying so busy so that when we sit down and allow things to become quiet, we start to notice things. One of the analogies I like to use is the analogy of a snow globe. So our minds can really be like that shaken up snow globe. Mm -hmm. And you can't really see whatever pretty little thing it is in there because you got all this stuff swirling around. You set it down, all that stuff starts to settle, and you can see clearly. It may be pretty stuff. It may be not so pretty stuff, but you do start to see it clearly. That's a very good analogy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably borrow that one. You're welcome to. I've <laughs> borrowed it from plenty of other people myself. <laughs> so the, the idea that I'm, I'm being present, I'm bringing awareness to the body, I'm bringing awareness to my thoughts, how does that help me battle anxiety or depression or some of the, some of the many things that science now tells us mindfulness and, and mindfulness-based stress reduction is beneficial in those arenas? What's the connection? How does that work? Okay, so let's think about anxiety, where it really is these kind of worrying little thoughts that are going on. This might happen, that might happen. Almost all those thoughts have to do with things that already happened in the past or things that are about to happen or we are worried 
are going to happen. We're anticipating. And so with mindfulness, when we practice this bringing our mind back again and again to focus on something happening in the present moment, and and we use the example of the breath, but people could focus on sounds. Um, I don't teach mantra meditation, but that's focusing on, um, you know, a little phrase or something. So, but you're focusing on something that's happening in the present, and you notice when your mind goes off and you bring it back. So that's a practice in doing it. So just like people go to the gym and they're doing reps, you know, rep after rep, repeating, you know, a, a movement to strengthen a muscle. In the same way, this practicing when you're doing formal sitting meditation of bringing the mind back again, recognizing, oh, that's a thought. Sometimes I'll even instruct people when they have when a thought, when they notice that they're thinking, notice it. Don't try to push it away. Label it thinking, mm-hmm. and then come back. So that process of again and again and again, identifying these are thoughts and coming back, then when you're just going about your day and you're getting anxious, you may be able to pause for a moment and go, oh, wait a minute, that's just a thought. Let me come back to what I'm trying to focus on here. Mm-hmm. I hope that... I think, I think it helps. I, it makes good sense to me, but I guess... Some folks might find that this is a little bit counterintuitive. Let me explain. I'm anxious right now. Now I want to sit and I want to focus on that anxiety or the or the, the, the feeling of anxiousness in my body. And doing that is somehow going to help alleviate the anxiety. I guess I can see where people might find that counterintuitive. But, but suffice to say, it does work. Right, right. And you're absolutely right. I often use the word counterintuitive in describing this. We talk about turning into the anxiety or turning into the pain and, that we're experiencing. In doing that, we really start to recognize it for what, it's, what it is. Rather than this amorphous, huge thing, we can start to dissect it out and see again, that it really isn't threatening us that much. And mm-hmm. as we sit there quietly, we notice that nothing bad is really happening. So That makes good sense. I guess I'm going to make the leap now to the other thing that I know mindfulness uh, and, and uh, meditation has been found helpful for, and that is managing chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And I know you've had experience with this. You're, you take care of patients. You've, you've taught meditation to chronic pain sufferers. Talk about how mindfulness can help us battle chronic pain. Okay, so one of the examples I love to give with that was being in labor. And I had my first two kids before everybody was using epidurals, <laughs> and I was actually a medical student when I had my first. So by this time I had learned that any drugs are going to cross the placenta, and I you know, didn't want anything bad <laughs> right. to happen. So I had a nine-pound, two-and-a-half-ounce baby with no um, anesthesia Ooh, of any wow. kind. And here's how that worked. It hurt. Oh, <laughs> okay? yeah. And when, but I should say, when the nurse would come by and she'd put her hand on me and say, you're okay and the baby's okay, then my mind didn't have to run away with me as much. So that was so calming. And I could say, okay, I can survive this. And that kind of... What we learn in sitting meditation or in any of the other mindfulness practices is by exploring the pain, we start to discover, oh, you know, I might say, oh, this pain is killing me. But after you sit down with a while, for a while and feel into the pain, you notice, oh, I guess it's not killing me. And the reality is most pains have a beginning and a middle 
and an end all of their own accord. So by watching the pain and seeing it eventually just sort of ebb on its own, we're really developing this wonderful self-empowering kind of skill to be able to work with pain. Absolutely. I've had this experience myself at times when I'm uh, in the middle of, of my practice of meditating where I'll have an itch or I'll have some uncomfortable sensation come up and you feel this strong compulsion that you got to itch that itch. And if you just let, just sit there with it and just focus on it, it eventually just sort of melts into the background and it's gone. And I can imagine sort of using that same idea to focus on chronic pain, having the same outcome. Right. makes good sense. You know, people are going to listen to this, I think, and, and they might have preconceptions about what mindfulness is and what meditation is. And for some people, this might feel a little bit new agey, or this might feel a little religious-y or whatever the word you're looking for is. How do you, how do you kind of, um, I guess, get past that with some people? We want people to try this. We think it's beneficial, but how do you talk people through that? Well, the first thing I would tell people is that one of the best attitudes that they can bring to studying mindfulness is an attitude of curious skepticism. I and, like that, yeah. curious skepticism. Yeah. Um, so, it, and that was one of the things that appealed to me so much about it was, you know, I had done yoga teacher training and I had heard some really out there concepts, um, you know, from teachers sometimes as they were leading class and some that I knew were physiologically wrong or anatomically wrong or just weird. But what I found that I was experiencing in doing the movements and the breathing and being there, I could kind of tune that out. But when I first did the training with John Kabat-Zinn, it was like, oh, this is very just science-based. They're not trying to sell me anything. And so I found that, you know, just very, that it had great integrity Mm -hmm. and that it was something that I could pay attention to and discover for myself that there was really nothing that was being pushed on me. Yeah. You mentioned John Kabat-Zinn once before, too, and, right. I, and I want to just talk about him for a second. I think where I acknowledge him is he's sort of the father of this more modern style of, of meditation, this mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is a more secular type of meditation. Meditation itself is a practice that's been around for centuries, and it's been affiliated with a lot of different religions. He was the guy who sort of put a sciencey twist on it and and sort of brought it into the mainstream. Yeah, he likes he he doesn't love the word secular mindfulness. He likes to call it mainstream mindfulness, okay. but but it, I think that the concept is yes that this is devoid of any religious background it, and it's devoid of any need to have any belief sure. in anything. It's really about hey, you know, come and try this, see what you think. So Ruth, I was hoping you could uh you could demonstrate for me a, a quick mindfulness session. Kind of walk me through exactly how this works and, and, and sort of take me on a journey to, to how this practice works. So you want to do a little practice Let's right here and now. Let's do a little practice. Okay, yeah. so the first step would just be to get yourself in a comfortable position. Want your spine relatively straight and okay. just you know, a position that feels comfortable and that you can be alert. If it's comfortable for you to close your eyes, then allowing the eyes to close. If not, just that's not a problem. You can just gaze at something, you know, a few feet in front of you, letting the gaze be down. And starting out, just having a sense of the body in its entirety and how are things in this body right now. 
They might be pleasant. They might be unpleasant. Just acknowledging, so not trying to change anything, but just feeling into the body. And now taking three intentionally deep breaths, so breathing in and breathing out, and taking two more deep breaths, noticing where you feel the breath most vividly as you're doing this. And after you've finished those three deep breaths, then just letting the breath go back to its own rate and rhythm, but keeping your attention on that spot in the body where you could most vividly feel the breath. And now simply breathing in, knowing that you're breathing in, breathing out, knowing that you're breathing out, even noticing the little pauses between the breaths. It's as simple as this practice is, but it's not necessarily easy. So when the mind wanders as it will, not pushing the thoughts away, when you notice the mind wandering, instead acknowledging, you might even label it thinking, and then coming back to the breath. So again and again, just breathing and coming back to the breath with an attitude of kindness or non-judgmentalness. This is just your mind doing what it should do. So just spending a moment or two practicing. And then as you're ready, allowing the eyes to open if they were closed. And that's a little taste. It's perfect. I think this conjures up some questions or may conjure up some questions for people who have never had the experience of, of any type of meditation before. And that is, Oh boy, my breathing feels weird. I feel it's, you know, I'm, I'm not doing it right. What, what's wrong? Why, why isn't it working for me? Like what are, how, what do you tell people in those situations? So guys? first of all, there's no, if you're, if you're sitting down and you're trying to follow these instructions, there's pretty much no way to do it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, second of all, some people do get really self-conscious about the breath and even feel like they can't breathe mm-hmm. as they're doing this. And so there's an option then of instead of focusing on the breath, focusing on sounds. And so just sitting and noticing the sounds that come into the room or that emanate from your body. And so letting the sounds be what we call the object of awareness. So that that can help. Very good. Let's talk now about mindfulness in everyday life, sort of what you referred to earlier as informal practice. So opportunities to have mindful moments throughout the day. Talk me through some of that. Okay, so one of them might be when you wake up in the morning and you're taking a shower. And for me, when I'm in the shower, a lot of times my head is at work already. And so just to pause and notice, there's this nice warm water coming down on me. (laughs) Oh, the soap smells good. And so, and again, it's a thing of the mind will wander off to work and bring it back to the shower. It's actually a pleasant experience. Sure. Um, You can stay mindful as you're brushing your teeth. One of the most, I think, enlightening things is to be mindful while you're eating. So um, we do an exercise with a raisin, and it's a pretty classic exercise. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you just give people... So what do you remember from that one? I remember having you passing out a raisin, first eyes closed, you're feeling the raisin, you don't know it's a raisin yet because you haven't looked at it, but you're just kind of exploring it, uh, you know, with your sense of touch. Then you, you know, you eventually come to this realization that it's a raisin, and you, you know, pop it in your mouth, and... 
and then you just sort of slowly um, let the flavors just just happen and, and be mindful of what's happening while it's happening. I'm a perfect example of somebody who shovels food. I don't have a ton of time in between this or that, so I'm just shoveling, shoveling, shoveling. So doing mindful eating for me is a great thing because it slows me down, and it also gives me a greater appreciation for the things that I'm actually eating. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's you know, mindful eating is just a, a great and fun, rewarding yeah. tool. Absolutely. To use, so mindful walking is a thing. Mindful walking is a thing. Mindfulness in relationships. So I remember reading stories to my kids, and sometimes even as I'm reading the story my head could be going someplace else instead of being right there watching the expression on my kids' faces, sure. getting into the story. Um, so really being present to another human being. Yeah, yeah, mindfulness during conversations, absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit now about the zone, all right? People hear about the zone. You hear about athletes who get into the zone and suddenly they're, you know, they're shooting 100% from three-point land or whatever. When I start my meditation practice, am I going to get in the zone? So a lot of people feel like they should get in the zone, and if they didn't get in the zone, they didn't do a good job. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, this particular practice, I was in the zone, (laughs) Um, and so that was good. And actually, probably a practice where you your mind wandered a gazillion times is probably a better practice in many ways because mindfulness is i think i mentioned it before like exercise and it's kind of like doing more reps of an exercise that this um, opportunity for the mind to wander notice it and bring it back that's strength strengthening your ability to be aware of what's going on to be able to focus your attention where you'd like it to be, and to do that in a way that's kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. So I'd say there are two huge benefits of mindfulness practice. One is the ability to focus and choo- put our attention where we want our attention to be, and the other is kindness or compassion, both for yourself and for others. Sure. And that's another example of a, of a type of classic meditation, and that's the what we call the loving-kindness meditation. Right. You want to talk about that for a second? You know, for some people, that's a really challenging one. I find for <laughs> physicians, it can be really tough um, because we, we're in a job where we feel like, you know, we can't make mistakes. And um, physicians are perfectionists. Huge generalization, <laughs> but it tends to be the case. Fair. Um, and we certainly don't want to make mistakes. But at the same time, we still are human mm-hmm. and we do make mistakes. So... It's, that's why we kind of beat up on ourselves and have a hard time with self-compassion. So starting out, a lot of times, uh, there, there are different parts of these loving-kindness meditations or self-compassion meditation. And a lot of times, many people, not just docs, will feel like, oh, I, I'm, I'm good with feeling this for other people, but it's hard for myself. And that's this meditation. So it's, it's a way of you, there are certain phrases mm-hmm. that you repeat or either listening to a teacher and you repeat them after her, or you just say them to yourself. So it would be like, may I be safe, may I be well, may I be happy, may I live with peace and ease. Those are kind of classics. And then you would do that for other people too. Um, And so that sounds maybe like positive affirmations, but there's a huge difference. You're coming at these without any intention of making yourself feel any particular way. 
So when you repeat those phrases in your head, the um, intention is to just notice what comes up. So the thing that a lot of us notice when we're wishing good thoughts to ourselves is that we really struggle with that. And so sticking with it, though, people really do find it very satisfying and heartwarming. Yeah, I want to say I've read about loving-kindness meditation, and it really has been shown to be just hugely beneficial. It really raises people um, in terms of their overall mood, in terms of their level of compassion. People really notice a difference when they start to incorporate this into practice. Now, that that being said, I don't love that it's called loving-kindness meditation. It sounds a little sappy to me, but whatever, we can call it whatever we want to call it. Right. Well, uh, unconditional friendliness meditation. There you go. There you go. I like that. I like that. How are we doing as, I'm, I'm a physician, how, how are we doing as a medical community of getting the word out on this? I think we have a, a tremendous opportunity. We're in the middle of an opioid epidemic right now. Um, we're trying to be very mindful of, of our prescribing patterns and so on. Where's the niche for this? And how can we start to mainstream this more? The main place to go with this is for people to develop, for anybody who's interested, to start out with themselves. So as a physician or a nurse or really anybody, you can't start teaching this or preaching this until you actually have done it yourself. Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. And one other just sort of caveat I'd put in here is that uh, there was a fairly recent article that came out called Mind the Hype by some of the really premier scientists in the field. And as mindfulness has become so popular and so mainstream, we're starting to see claims made that they're that really are lacking the scientific basis for them. You know, we, we get a small study that shows something and then you hear it in the press touted over-enthusiastically. Mm-hmm. So, so one thing is, is that, for instance, we don't know a lot about negative outcomes from mindfulness practice. We do know that there are some um, people who go on, for instance, you know, a long silent retreat. There are definitely stories of people having some pretty serious you know, mental breakdowns have you, have you done that before? Have you oh, gone on oh, silent yeah, retreat? Yeah, to, to be a teacher, you really need to be going on silent retreat. So I've now done, I think it's about 13 five to 10 day silent retreats. Five to 10 days, wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. It is not necessarily for everyone, and that people with, for instance, um, psychotic diseases, um, really, that should be handled very carefully in working with their healthcare provider. There is evidence that these might be beneficial, but there's some folks who this may be, it isn't always the right time for everybody. And there may be some people who this really is never a good thing for. So those, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. One of the few, I think, what you'd call a contraindication to to any kind of meditation practice is uh, sort of psychosis or, or, or schizophrenia might not be the right person to, to start up a mindfulness yeah, practice. Yeah, depe- just depending. I mean, they're... they're Situation dependent, right, right? Right, So I, I, it's kind of a, I wouldn't draw a line in the sand anywhere, but just to say, yeah, that that would be, there'd be caution there. What do you recommend as a means to get started? Going to a class, reading a book, like what are some ideas? Yeah, t- going to a class, being face-to-face with a teacher and with other students, mm-hmm. I think is really the ideal way 
to do this. Um, so, you know, people, we, we do offer a growing number of classes here at Beaumont for the community. Um, so is this a good time to give the website? Or? Uh, yeah, go yeah, for okay. it. Okay, so it would be beaumonthealth.org slash mindfulness. Perfect. Um, and that's an easy way to contact us. Or we have an email at centerformindfulness at beaumont.org. Very nice. Yeah. Well, listen, Ruth, this has been a really great conversation, and you've been a great guest, so thank you for coming on again. I think that's about all the time we're going to have for today. I want to thank the amazing Dr. Ruth Lerman for coming on the podcast. Ruth, do you have anything else you want to share with us before we part Just ways? Just a pleasure, Nick, to see you, and so good to know that your practice is strong, and that's wonderful. Thank you. It's great to see you, too. I also want to remind uh, you out there listening to send along any questions or suggestions that you might have to podcast at beaumont.org. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. In a future podcast, Dr. Shah Jahan and I will answer our mailbag. I'm going to leave you today with this healthy thought. Imagine that you could potentially make yourself a better person by simply sitting on a cushion, bringing awareness to your body, and focusing on your breath for a few minutes a day. Mindfulness and meditation have been around for years, but now science is getting on board and the data is very impressive. With potential for improved management of anxiety, depression, chronic pain, and many other things, mindfulness is quickly becoming another vital tool in our quest for better health and wellness. Thank you.